Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Lisa Smitkamp on the show. Lisa has been the Fresno County DA since 2015 and has worked in the DA's office since 2001. This was a super fun interview and Lisa definitely pushed back hard on some of the assumptions that I had in my questions. Overall, I would say my objective with this conversation was to work hard to understand Lisa's worldview. And I think by the end of this conversation, you will have a clear understanding of her philosophy and goals. Please enjoy my conversation with Lisa Smitkamp and Baker will take us there. To the best little city left in the U.S. Fresno's best. Fresno's best. So Lisa, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Uh, well, I my my favorite place to eat is probably Heirloom. It's quick and easy and healthy. Um, and I'm also a big sushi fan, so I also like better fish. Um, and um, you know, there's a lot of places I like to eat. I'm very good friends with a lot of a lot of the Dechicos, so I always like to eat at Dechicos too. All right, give us your Heirloom order because I go there a lot too. I'm oh, I'm all about the salmon, the salmon mm. and the fried rice and uh, the wedge salad. That's usually yes. my go-to. Yeah. The cauliflower I, is really good too. The the fried rice that they do, I wish I'm always like, I, I order it and then I'm like, where's the extra sauce? Cause I just yeah. <laughs> dump that sauce all over it. <laughs> well, um, they'll give it to you if you ask. I've, for it. And I've never actually ordered the the salmon at heirloom before. What is, is it? Is it like it's a salmon. baked salmon? What is it? Yeah. It's just grilled actually. It's just Ooh. grilled and I don't know what they put on it, but whatever it is, it's delicious. And it comes with like, a, I think it's called the tzatziki sauce. It's like a yogurt mm. based sauce. And I live close to heirloom during the pandemic. Heirloom was such yeah. a godsend because you could just like, put your order in, go to that little window, yep. pick it up, and then you're out. And I, yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I, and I, I think the great, thing, the great thing about heirloom too, is there's something for everyone, you know, it's, mm. there's something for adults. There's always good food for kids and teenagers. And, um, there's beef. If you like all that kind of stuff, like I've, I'll call, it, call that man food. Cause all the men in my life like to eat the tri-tip <laughs> and, um, but there's also really good salads and it's a really good concept. Great, great food. Yeah. When we moved uh, here from Southern California, there was a few places kind of like heirloom that we wished existed. And when heirloom opened up, it was like, this is exactly what we've <laughs> dreamed of a place, a place where everyone can get what they want. And it's not, there's no deficient areas on the menu. It's not like there's right. one area where you don't order the pasta or something. It's, it's, it's pretty universally good. So right, right, right. Um, I'm on the same page with you. Um, so we're going to talk about a little bit about crime in Fresno and uh, okay. we're going to start with statistics um, because I think data is a good place to start data. And a lot of people, especially when I moved to Fresno, they made kind of blanket generalizations about crime in Fresno and kind of spoke about Fresno as almost an entity itself. Mm -hmm. uh, but I know crime exists um, in different concentrations in different areas. So I guess my first question to you is, is it useful to think about crime at a citywide level or should we be looking more granularly at, at different neighborhoods or different parts of the city? You know, I think 10 years ago or maybe even five years ago, I probably would have answered this differently. Um, but right now, I think we see the same problems, not only all over the city of Fresno, but all over the county, right? We have um, we have the same issues no matter where we go, whether it's, you know, violent crime um, with gangs and guns, or we have theft issues that, you know, much of that is related to drug addiction and homelessness, which is, 
you know, all of the issues that surround um, things I've been talking about for a long time, for eight years now, with the decriminalization of drugs and um, Prop 47, you know, it just changed everything for everybody uh, in the sense of, you know, people who were struggling with addicts in their family, people who are struggling with addictions themselves. And, you know, obviously that all affects the economy and the, the level of criminal activity that goes on. And it's funny that you say, you know, you always want to talk about the crime stats because I don't like stats. I think they're a necessary um, tool for us, but so much today of crime goes unreported that I think sometimes we don't even really, even those of us that deal with the stats and deal with the crime, we don't even really know everything that goes on because there is this sort of feeling, you know, out there that all the departments are overwhelmed and nobody really cares. And it's just all this low level crime. And we have such an acceptance of, you know, drug use and, and all the things that come with that, that sometimes uh, crime just isn't reported. You know, we have a big thing with the retailers too, where, you know, we, we say, please call us because if, if you're having your store security handle situations, and then they just handle all the, the economic losses with, you know, within their corporation or within their mom and pop, you know, budget, um, it doesn't help us understand what, what's happening out there. And we don't, we can't fix what we don't know is broken. So, um, you know, there's a lot of people that complain, but we don't sometimes get the cooperation that we need with reporting and participation and in investigations. Well, and, and there's two layers to this. I think about like, it's maybe similar to what they're dealing with COVID numbers right now, where there's a lot of people that are doing at-home tests and they're not reporting a positive number. So we're not getting accurate numbers of how many positive cases we have. But also, you know, I know from the world of education, which is, you know, you need to report things so you can have a budget to address those things. And if things go unreported, then you you had don't have resources that you might otherwise need. Um, And and so for you, there's there's um, there's a blanket layer of of people not reporting certain kinds of crimes. And then do you not have resources to address those because they're not reported or is it just not giving you an accurate picture of the city and and crime prevalence as it exists? No, I, I don't I don't think it's necessary that we don't have the resources to address them. I mean, we we have other issues in that regard in the sense that, yeah, we we have lost people in all law enforcement agencies, uh, just like just like most industries have come come through and most, um, you know, whether it's the health sector or the education sector or law enforcement um, post covid, it's just, I think, times that nobody really has ever seen. There's there's so many vacancies you know, around. I think the county of Fresno itself has like a 13 percent vacancy and we're, we're about 10 percent on our prosecutors. Thankfully, we're staffed up in our investigative staff and our support staff. But we've lost a lot of prosecutors um, during the covid crisis because of the swelling caseloads. They just they feel like they have no quality of life. And, you know, when you're a when you're a lawyer, you have ethical standards that you have to uphold. And so, yes, that is definitely an issue because we have had swelling caseloads with with COVID and the sort of the quarantine issues in the jail and not being able to get people to court and all that kind of stuff. But but as a whole, I think going back to the you know the issue of actual reporting crimes, it, it is relevant on in certain subject matter crimes that that retailers and people who own you know businesses like uh, liquor stores and things like that, it is very important for them to report. And it is frustrating because they do become low priority calls, especially if somebody has done a, you know, sort of a, a beer run, if you will, out of a, out of a liquor store or, and there, and there's no threat to anybody and no one's been hurt. No one's been, been injured. Right. A lot of the times those, you know, those are misdemeanors 
because they're, they don't amount to the, to the dollar amount. And if, you know, sometimes you can make a robbery out of it. Sometimes it's a petty theft. And it is frustrating for law enforcement officers to have to take reports on cases that, you know, you get to court. And, and if you even get to court, nothing really even happens to the perpetrators because the laws that are being passed in Sacramento, right under the noses of every person who lives in California are very anti-public safety. And, you know, a lot of people will try to politicize it and make it red and blue or R&D, but it, it really it really isn't that. Yes, there's one political party that, you know, sort of leading the charge, but and it has to, and, you know, it happens to be, you know, all these Democrats, but there are really good Democrats out there. It's not it's not an R&D thing. The, 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 the percentage of the people in the Democrat Party who are passing these laws are even sort of shocking to what, you know, what I call the, the good Democrats, the people who are fair, reasonable, want safe streets and healthy economy and all that kind of stuff. So what's happening is, is we have lost so much of our ability to, uh, to, to, to reprimand or punish or attempt to rehabilitate people that, that there's this sort of, you know, little spinning thing of little just anarchy. People, people steal, they take what they want because they want it, not because they pay for it. You know, they steal because they know there's not going to be any consequences. And those types of crimes are the types of crimes that actually affect the average person. You know, by the grace of God, the average person is probably not going to be unlucky enough to be a victim of a, of a, a gang gun crime, right? They, they hopefully will never be the person, the unintended innocent victim of a, of a gang member who's firing a weapon somewhere. Um, but they are a victim of, of other things, you know, the daily things, you know, you're, you're a victim of retail theft when you go to a store and pay $72 for a shirt that's only worth, you know, 43, because the, the retailers just keep jacking up the prices to pay for all the loss that they have and the shrinkage, as they call it, you know, we call it theft, they call it shrinkage. But, uh, but, you know, people don't realize that there is so much of that going on today, because we live in a society that does not value you know, the old traditional ways of working hard and earning what you have, earning money to purchase what you want. And, and, you know, so many people are involved in theft, theft crimes. And then the drugs and alcohol and the addictive disorders that we have today are causing mental health and mental health issues, homelessness, increased child abuse, increased domestic violence. Um, and, you know, of course, more gun violence and more, um, you know, more theft of, of everything, cars, homes, stores, uh, vandalism, you know, there's a lot of people that are under the influence that, that vandalize properties. So the list goes on and on. What, what do you think the impact of something like the 988 number, uh, the new mental health line where you're kind of creating different pathways uh, in emergency situations? Uh, do you see that as a positive thing that's going to maybe de-escalate some situations yeah, with a family yeah. member who's having a psychotic break or something and you don't want to call, you know, maybe a, a naive police officer that shows up and doesn't understand the situation. Do you, do you see that as a, a pathway to kind of address some of this? That we're, yeah, we're I, th about? I think definitely, you know, the things that the county of Fresno is doing with behavioral health and public health, they work a lot together, you know, and they work with us also in law enforcement. They, they do amazing things. But this the, the part that's frustrating is there is such a, a small percentage of the people who actually have these issues that attach themselves to those resources. They're out there 
you know, they do public service announcements and they do all kinds of, um, you know, marketing, if you will. Um, there's websites and they try to have resources out in schools and clinics and, you know, they do public service announcements. And I know that they have a social media presence, but there's a lot of people who are in those situations, whether their mental health issues are there, they, they just come from natural consequences um, and natural processes that happen to people, or they are, you know, sort of a dual diagnosis where there's where there's an addiction that sometimes exacerbates, um, you know, a mental health condition and causes, you know, its own set of, of, of new issues. Um, people who are in that state sometimes aren't really in the best place to reach out for help, right? And they're in the middle of their, their crisis. And so they need people around them to encourage them to, to kind of get that help, you know? And, and I think that um, that's why we have to rely on schools and we have to rely on hospitals. And, you know, we really need to start relying more on each other, quite honestly. I think we, we live in this, this world of phones and social media and, and everybody is just, you know, and, and I'm guilty of it too. Everybody's like this all day long, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're like this all day long. Last night, my daughter was talking to me and I was doing this and I thought, what am I doing? You know, put your phone down. Uh, let's let's jump in. You mentioned it before, and I was going to bring it up anyway. Let's talk about Prop Forty Seven. Um, can you okay. give, uh, give the audience just kind of uh, a brief overview of what it is, what it changed uh, sure. in terms of the sentencing? Uh, I guess it's not requirements, but how we sentence certain crimes or how they're classified, and then yeah. what is your evaluation of its outcome? Yeah. So Prop Forty Seven passed in two thousand and fourteen in November, and it was implemented immediately in January. And what Prop 47 did is it took the possession of every illegal narcotic, uh, possession, personal possession of methamphetamine, heroin, cocaine, you name it. Even now we have these fentanyl pills, you know, pills laced with fentanyl. Um, It took it down to a misdemeanor. So possession, just personal possession is now a misdemeanor. And in addition to Prop 47 um, addressing drugs, it also dealt with theft. So if, uh, if somebody stole less than $950 worth of goods, belongings, whatever, it was deemed to be a misdemeanor. And so you might say, well, okay, that's not the worst thing in the world because, well, you know, people who are using drugs are just using, just hurting themselves. And it's really not a crime. You know, it's just, you got to help people that are in these situations sort of get out of them. So my criticism of Prop 47 from the jump has been that the, the, the people that Prop 47 was sold to help, it's actually really hurt those people because um, the ballot title for Prop 47 was safe schools and neighborhoods and the, the politicians and the, and the people who wanted this law passed, um, they, they sold it to people that they were going to be able to keep so many people out of prison. It was going to save the state so much money that all the money they saved by incarceration was going to go back to the neighborhoods and build safe schools and neighborhoods. And what a, what a crock, right? Because those of us who've worked in the system know the first thing that was so frustrating to people that were in the know is that everything that Prop 47 offered, which was a misdemeanor for you know, drug and theft crimes, um, those opportunities for reductions from felonies to misdemeanors were already there. The difference was you had to earn it. And in order to get rid of the felony, you had to go through one of you know, three or four different types of drug uh, diversion programs. And so it was, there were, there were plenty of opportunities for people to earn misdemeanors and sometimes even dismissals, you know, it was their first time out. So I think that was the most frustrating thing for me 
personally as a prosecutor thinking this is just a this is just a bamboozle that's all it is it's just is it like a version of like a mandatory maximum so there's mandatory minimums and this is kind of like you can't go above this and so you get you well, lose yeah, that I mean, a misdemeanor, there's there's two there's two kinds of misdemeanors in the state of california one is punishable by up to up to a year in, in county jail and the other one is punishable up to six months in the county jail but but quite honestly after ab 109 which you really can't talk about prop 47 unless you talk about ab 109 which was a few years before which was the criminal realignment of the California Department of Corrections, um, where the state was told that their prison population was swelling, and so they had to empty the prisons. We were at 147% capacity, and the Supreme Court of the United States said we could only be at 120 or something like that. So they had to let out about 40, 40 to 50,000 prisoners. And in that vein, you know, nobody will, nobody in the, the political correct world will say that we need to build more prisons, except Lisa Smithcamp, the who cares DA in Fresno, California? Um, because when you have more people, you you need more prisons. And when you have more criminals, you have you need more prisons. And and that's just it's just simply a numbers game. But there is just such a wave of of um, this this mentality that that you know prosecutors are these unreasonable people who want to send everybody who steps off the sidewalk and jaywalks to prison or everybody who smoked a marijuana joint, you know, in 1985, every, all those people should go to prison. That's just, it's just hogwash. I mean, I can't even think of a different word. Well, I could think of another word, but I wouldn't say it on your nice podcast. And I think that's one of the most frustrating things about being a prosecutor or being in law enforcement today is the misnomers and fighting the untruths because the, the political campaigns, whether they be people who are running for political office or these propositions, right, that they pass on the ballot. Because remember, a proposition is something that couldn't get through the assembly and couldn't get through the Senate, right, by, by the elected officials. Uh, and so they put it as a ballot initiative, right? And so that's, that's how we ended up with Prop 47. And it was sold to the voters through a very crafty marketing um, account, uh, marketing styles, right? That's exactly what political campaigns are. They're, they're marketing tools. And so they were able to have a bad ballot title, right? A misleading bad ballot title that, that Fresno County has not received one dime of Prop 47 money. A lot of it, I think, has gone to LA or San Francisco, but we don't have any of that money here. And so people were bamboozled into it and into thinking that it was a good thing. Um, and what's happened is it has increased addiction because because when you when you pass a law in November and it becomes effective in January where is the time to set up the the fallout if you will right so you're you're not going to put people in jail anymore for for felony possession of methamphetamine or heroin or whatever no matter what their criminal history is because it's only a misdemeanor so what are you going to do with them you just cite somebody if you if you've ever had anyone that you know a friend or a family member if you give someone a, a you know uh, if you give a drug addict a, a, a citation to come to court in 90 days, chances are they're going to probably put their addiction above going to court and not show up. And so what happens to that person? Because people who casually or recreationally use any type of drug, whether it's marijuana or cocaine or methamphetamine, if they use it once a month or they go to a party and they take a bump here or a bump there, those aren't the people that are on the street. Those aren't the people that are getting caught. Those aren't the people who are, you know, um, engaging with law enforcement usually. And so when you are a person who is engaging with law enforcement because you're addicted to a drug, it's probably a pretty severe addiction, right? And we, we all, I always talk about the pendulum of use, which sometimes is mostly all recreational. Nobody starts off smoking pot going, God, I can't wait to start this so I can be a heroin addict someday. People don't say that. 
it's a party, you know, we're going to hang out, we're going to relax, it's like people have a glass of wine, whatever, smoke a little pot, I'm going to do a little meth. And for those people that are able to handle it, great, good for you, you know, you can do that. But the people who are then go from the pendulum of use to abuse to addiction, those are the people that we find, the abuse and the addiction. And when you're in the addiction, it's it's very difficult to get people to be responsible for themselves. There's a lot of self-loathing, a lot of, you know, a lot of guilt, um, a lot of hopelessness in, involved with people who are all the way into that abuse and addiction phase. And it takes a lot of work on their part and parts of addictive recovery, law enforcement, you know, whoever they might be with, if they're on probation or probation officers to try to help them get in the right programs and, and, and succeed. So another failure of Prop 47 is it didn't allocate for programming. It didn't allocate for, for, for drug rehab, either inpatient or outpatient. So what happened? You just have all these people who are abusing and addicted to drugs floating around the world. And, and who do they become a burden on? They become a burden on society. They become a burden to their families. They become, they lose their jobs. They are, they are dropping out of school. They're angry and they're addicted. So they're beating their, their spouses. They're not, they're neglecting their children, right? Because they are feeding their habit and they're not feeding their kids. You know, the cycle is just insane. So what do we do? We rely on our faith-based community a lot. To, to try to help people through some of these addictions and, you know, celebrate recovery is great in a lot of churches here in Fresno, but we're eight years into Prop 47 and the state hasn't done a damn thing to help people with addictions. And, you know, all they do is blame the prosecutors and blame the cops for, you know, mistreating people and abusing the system and, oh, these terrible, you know, I used to listen to John Legend's music and I, I have erased him from my apple because I want to say, buddy, just sing, okay, because that's what you're good at. Because he comes out and he's attacked prosecutors and he's attacked cops. And he talks about all of these things that are just not true. And, and he and he takes, you know, he's one of many people in the music industry or the entertainment industry. He takes all these people and brainwashes them into believing that things are not true. Are there problems in the system? Absolutely. Is there racism in the world? Sure. Are we perfect? No. Are all prosecutors or cops perfect? No. Just the same way all teachers aren't, or all nurses aren't, or all doctors aren't. Uh, all teachers no, are perfect. No one is. I'm going to say that. They're, of course, they're, they're pretty all close. Perfect. They're yes, pretty close. They are. We actually uh, get some here through our office, so I'm going to say not all. <laughs> yeah. Not well, all. I, you know, I, I think there's, there's probably a confluence of things going on there. You know, I'm thinking about the Community Mental Health Act and the reduction of state hospitals across the country. You know, there's a there's a lot of and it sounds like what you're saying is that before Prop 47, there was a clear kind of pathway for people that were in this world um, that you could direct them along, you know, whether it was criminal justice, uh, whether that's the solution that works for everybody. Mm -hmm. At least there was somewhere to kind of place them. But now they're just kind of floating. And so well, what I the state needs to do is invest in alternative pathways if they don't want to put them in the criminal justice system. Yes. And, I, you know, and this is what I, I even talked to, you know, then Governor Brown when he was trying to tout Prop 57 about getting people out of, I'm, I'm sorry, Prop 57, not 47. 57 was after 47. Um, you know, pro, he wanted everyone to get on board for Prop 57. And I said, Governor, if you would like to talk about actually teaching people things in prison, skills, you know, vocations, welding, plumbing, whatever. That's great. Let's do that. Let's teach them something because what you're doing by just letting them out early 
is, is encouraging them to continue their criminality. Because if you don't teach, if you give a man a fish, but you don't teach him to fish, what are you doing? He's good for one meal. But if you teach him to fish, he can then sustain himself, provide for his family, have good confidence and self-esteem. And then hopefully if he learns how to fish, then he can learn how to sell his fish and learn how to market his fish and make money and be productive and help other people. That's the whole, whether you're religious or not, you know, that story is really just a good basis for life. And with all of these free passes that we're giving people, it's not working. It's not working for them. It's not working for society. It's not working for healthy communities. It's not helping children. It's not helping families. It's not helping churches. It's not helping the economy. It, th there's nothing good that's coming from it. And accountability in criminal justice is just as important as accountability in education accountability in healthcare, accountability in, you know, raising your family, accountability in abiding by your marital vows or wh whatever aspect of your life you're talking about, whatever your race, religion, socioeconomic group, it doesn't matter. We all have to be accountable, not only to ourselves, but our families and our communities. And by passing all of these laws, the get out of jail free cards, the reduce everything to a misdemeanor, the every, you know, every cop and every law enforcement person who's trying to make people color in the lines is a racist. You know, these are not, these are not productive conversations. And you can see I get very passionate about it because I've been doing this for so long. And I have seen so many people who are held accountable, who do go through the system, who come out on the other end better. Is it easy? No. Do they have to abide by probation or parole or do they have to sometimes do jail time? Yes, because you know, if you know anything about recovery, there's a very good saying that says nothing changes if nothing changes. And if you continue to allow people, which is what we're doing in the state of California, to run amok, this is what you're going to get. Yeah. Well, it seems like we need to invest in a lot of places because for a lot of people, you know, prison uh, does not help them improve um, and get better. Um, right. They may learn some and, consequences, and, but we need to invest in better programming for people and, or better better pathways for people when they get out. And quite, and quite honestly, Jordan, most of the people who are in prison who are people who have failed those programs mm. numerous yeah. times. You know, when I was a young prosecutor, I was assigned to the sexual assault team and there were child molesters who would get felony probation, people who touched children under the age of 14, under the age of 12. And it would just infuriate me because, you know, I was under the, you know, the, I had this passionate, these passionate arguments that these people need to be punished and be taken out of society. And there, there are people who, if it was their first time felony and there wasn't any, you know, violence, judges would sentence them to local jail. So even 20 years ago, you have to be a very violent person or a person who's committed very serious crimes over a long period of time to go to prison. We don't send people to prison for no reason, especially now in the last five, six, seven, eight years, because there is no more room in the prisons. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, the Jew. Well, I think I'm on the wrong account. Um, let's talk a little bit about the judicial system and the process of adjudication. Okay. Um, sure. let's talk about, um, please. Um, okay. a lot of people don't, 
you know, people imagine when, you know, you're uh, accused of a crime, you go to trial, there's a jury, mm -hmm. but for most people, that's not their experience. True. They enter some kind of plea agreement uh, with their prosecuting attorney and they come to some agreement and it just never goes to trial. Um, if, would the system be more or less equitable if a higher proportion of cases actually went to trial? I think that plea bargains are oftentimes more equitable than trials. Because when you, when you do a trial, there are things that are excluded, right? There is evidence sometimes that is excluded. There are hearings that happen before the trial occurs. And, um, and some evidence doesn't come in. And you're asking 12 people who don't know really anything about the criminal justice system, usually, uh, to, to come in and understand sometimes very esoteric uh, areas of the law, whether that be legal theories, whether that be burdens of proof, you know, the difference between specific intent and general intent crimes. And, you know, the average person has a hard time understanding that. We, we start in law school, right? And we go through law school, we pass the bar, we practice, and we're constantly learning. I mean, I have to tell you, I, when I was trying cases, I would read jury instructions sometimes six and seven and eight times before I would understand them. And I would find a way to sort of, you know, you don't ever want to be condescending and say, dumb it down, but not, not dumb intellectually, but just to try to bring it to a, a, a place where a lay person can understand it. So trials are complicated, very complex areas of the law. And so I think with plea bargains and the reason that we do plea bargain, probably 98 to 99% of the cases that come through the Superior Court in Fresno is because, which is average, you know, nationwide, I would imagine. Uh, I don't think that if anybody does a lot of trials, it's probably us here in Fresno. But most cases settle because everyone is represented. The people of the state of California are represented by the DA. The victims are not represented by the DA, but they have a, they have a constitutional right under Marcy's law to be heard by the court. And, you know, we are the advocates for them while they are in the process. And the defendant is represented by counsel. And, you know, I tell people this all the time. A lot of people think like, oh, you know, the public de defender's office is second rate, second rate defense attorneys. If you're in trouble, you have to go out and get a private lawyer and nothing against the private lawyers. But uh, because many of them are former public defenders, the public defender's office is, is full of extremely talented people, very smart people, very capable people. And their job is to make sure that their clients' rights are, are protected and that they were you know, protected from the time they contacted police until the time that verdict comes in. And so when, when a client enters into a plea bargain, he or she has the benefit of that counsel. And so when the, the court is informed, not always of every nuance, but the public defender and the prosecutor both should know every nuance of every case they have. And if there are litigatable, if that's even a word, uh, issues, then those go to trial. And so the plea bargaining process is one that is not just, oh, they just entered into a plea bargain. You know, there's a risk of going to trial all the time because you are bringing in this portion of the evidence. You know, as a prosecutor, you don't know, is your, is your lady from the DNA lab going to get sick and not be able to come in? Is your victim going to say what she said to the police? Is she going to say that in front of the jury? Is she going to remember? Is she going to lie? You know, you, you just don't know. You know, the, when I was a little girl, I used to watch the Mickey Mouse Club and they would have this thing, you know, I'm old, so this was in the like early seventies. They would open up these doors 
every week on the Mickey Mouse Club. And one day, one door was, you know, a stampede of elephants. And one day, next day, it was like butterflies. That's like doing a trial. When you put a witness on the witness stand, you don't know if you're going to get, you know, sweet butterflies and everything's going to go fine, or you're going to get a stampede of elephants. And it's a risk that you take. So no, I do not think that we would have a more equitable system if we did more trials. I think the cases that go to trial are cases where there's arguments to be made and there is evidence to be assessed. And that's when we bring in the jury. And sometimes we do court trials where we bring in the judge. Um, and then somebody has to be the trier of fact. And, and those are the cases that we do it. But the ones that do get plea bargained, they are analyzed and, and thoroughly um, investigated before plea bargains and pleas are ever entered. I think people see on TV, um, you know, versions of this where um, someone's afraid to go to trial because the outcome might be so severe that they're willing to take a plea bargain just to avoid, you know, playing playing dice with their life. Mm -hmm. um, how how accurate is that? Uh, oh, I think I think that's very accurate. You know, I think that's very accurate because it is a it is a weighing of that of those facts because a lot of the times it's not necessarily. Uh, especially today with the technology that we have, it's not necessarily did this person do the act that is the crime, mm -hmm. but could they be found guilty? Right. So, you know, are there people, I mean, I, I laugh sometimes I was watching something on TV the other day about this man that was freed after being incarcerated for 30 years and he was freed through the innocence project. And I thought, Hmm, when I retire, I, I could work for the innocence project. Because what could be better for a career prosecutor to then go to work for people, you know, who have been incarcerated before we had DNA, before we had those things? I would, I would be honored, to, honestly, to do that work. Uh, the work that the, that that organization does is fantastic. Because are there people that maybe are wrongfully convicted? I would, I would say yes, there there are, and that, and that's a very sad portion of the of the justice system, you know. And there's a lot of ills from the past that we can't heal. But right now, today, with the technology that we have, with the surveillance cameras, with the sophistication of DNA, um, you know, most people who are accused of crimes plead guilty or no contest because they did it and, and, and they know they did it. And, you know, is there a portion of those people who maybe are charged with, you know, crimes that they plead to that maybe they wouldn't be able to prove? in a court of law because they're gonna get 180 days of custody time and be able to do 90 and get out versus if the jury does believe that they committed all those crimes, they're gonna to go to prison for three years. I'm sure that that happens, but, it, but it's not a case of, you know, th those aren't the cases of mistaken identity, you know, that you hear about on the, on the news or the Innocence Project or the Datelines. You know, it's, it's one of those situations where, you know, we look, the, I think, I think uh, defense attorneys look more at like, you know, was the stop lawful? Was there a violation of Miranda? Was there, um, you know, was the search warrant adequate? Uh, you know, those are the issues really that they're trying to protect most of the time. And, and I think you, you very rarely will find people that are, you know, wrongfully convicted in the sense that, you know, we got the wrong rapist or we got the wrong murderer. Um, and, and, and those, those cases I'm sure happen, but they happen few and far between. Right. What is Am the I talking too much? No, 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 <laughs> no, no. Answers, sorry. <laughs> no, that's what people listen for. I mean, people love, people love long-winded podcasts. They, they'll listen to Joe Rogan talk for three hours. You know, people, 
people love to listen to people uh, talk. So, um, what what for you is the ideal relationship between a prosecutor and a, a public defender? Well, I think we have um, very respectful relationships both in and outside the courtroom. Many of us are friends outside the courtroom. We have maybe different philosophies on certain things, but you know, when you're in the courtroom, it's advocacy and you have a position and they have a position. And I think the, the, I think the best way to describe that relationship and what makes it healthy is that we, we have to not only understand that we have different roles, but we, we have to respect those roles and respect the people that, that, that have them, you know, as, as professionals. And so, um, if you, if you look at, you know, the relationship between the Fresno County DA's office and the Fresno County public defender's office, you know, we have, we have DA's that are married to public defenders. We, we have, we have DA's that date public defenders. You know, we have, um, we have lots of us who have had long-term friendships with public defenders in the sense that we are, we are all lawyers, you know, we all live here. We all want to save community. And we understand that the other one, it's really not about when you get down to the core of career prosecutors and and career public defenders or defense attorneys, it's really not about guilt and innocence. It's really about justice. It's really about using the system to ensure that people's rights are upheld. And that is for defendants and suspects and victims and witnesses and people who live here that don't ever come in contact with any of of those entities. You know, when I became the DA, there was a policy that if a criminal defendant called here to the DA's office to find out if their case was filed, they were not to be given any information. And I was, I was, the receptionist told me that, and I was, I was literally blown away. And I told her, I said, Blanca, we represent the people, you know, the people of the state of California, but we represent the people of, of Fresno County. And, and until that, that includes people who are accused of crimes, we represent them too. So if someone is accused of a crime and they, they, you know, there was a bad stop or, or there was a, a witness who didn't tell the truth, they're not a criminal. They're, 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 and, and until they're represented by counsel, we will give them statistical information. We will say your case is under review. We will say your arraignment is set for this date. We haven't filed the case yet, or we have filed the case and you need to either get counsel or call the public defender's office. Yes, we will provide that information because we represent everyone. And so I think that mentality has helped. Um, and I, you know, we don't have any, we, the public defender and I always get along really well. It's Antoinette Tylek now, it was Liz Diaz before. And, and we get along great. Uh, we, we differ, you know, on things. And sometimes I lose my temper and sometimes she loses her temper. And then we apologize the next day, just like every other normal, you know, doctors and nurses and teachers and principals, you know, sometimes you, you disagree, but we really do all work together. Um, even though we have different roles in the system, because there isn't a public defender, um, around who wants to see a murderer go free if they've killed someone and they're a danger to society. But if that murderer who is accused of that crime has had their rights violated by an unlawful search warrant or somebody planting evidence or all these things that, you know, we hear about on television, then you're damn right that public defender's job is to make sure that that person isn't 
found guilty or, you know, they, and they advocate for them in court or to come to us and say, Hey, this may have happened, but before we get to the end, we've got to talk about this. And, and we have not filed cases because there's either an insufficiency of the evidence or there's some sort of a breach of, of, of people's rights. And that's what we do. We've dismissed cases. I've dismissed cases on people who I know committed the crime, but I can't prove it because I lose a witness or I lose a victim or, or there was a bad stop. You know, there was a time when I was early on in my career in another county and there was a law enforcement officer in a very small town and he knew everybody that was on probation. He knew everybody that was subject to search and seizure, and he would follow these people until they did something wrong, you know, until they didn't turn their turn signal on or they, you know, you can cop completely over here and have a dirty windshield. Let's just be honest. The vehicle code is pretty, pretty intense. And then, you know, one defense attorney came to me, another defense attorney came to me. And so I went to my boss. I said, listen, I think this is a bad, I was young. I said, I think we have a bad cop here. And he said, you do show me some examples. So I showed him some examples. He, my boss then, who is a judge now, went to the sheriff and he told the sheriff his concerns and they did an internal investigation and we dismissed a whole bunch of cases. Mm. Well, and it's important, right? Because that happens. You, you want people to trust law enforcement when they're on the stand describing what happens. And if you just let bad cops slide, then that hurts your ability to make persuasive cases. Absolutely. We had another example here in Fresno during my tenure as DA, where um, a law enforcement officer at an agency who's since been terminated, uh, he, he told a lie on the stand. And it wasn't a, you know, I mean, all lies are egregious when you're on the stand, but it was a, it was a, it was a, a, a kind of a CYA probably lie for yeah. him, but he lied and, and it came to our attention and we knew it. And he had 121 cases where he was currently uh, a, a witness where, where we could have used him as a witness. And we had to audit every one of those cases. And wherever he was the sole investigating officer, those cases were dismissed mm. on the people's motion, not because we turned it over to the defense. And when they popped up, you know, they said, oh, hey, this cop had this problem and he got fired for it. No, we dismissed them. And I'll tell you, it was a gut punch because most of the people who he arrested were guilty of the crime that they committed, but he had no credibility and we could not have proven those cases with him as the sole witness. And so we had to dismiss them. So those are the things that don't make the six o'clock news. Those are the things, you know, and, and whenever there is a, a law enforcement person, whether it's a prosecutor or a cop who is released from duty for dishonesty, we, we as department heads under the law cannot discuss those things. They're personnel matters. And we can't make statements. We can say this person no longer works here, but we can't say, yeah, we put him through the ringer and you know they were found to be dishonest. And so we we gave him the boot. We can't, we can't say that. It's unlawful. So you know there's a lot of there's a lot of bad information out there. Yeah. Let's talk about one uh, one argument that's made by a lot of legal scholars is that we don't have enough data on prosecutors' decision-making. We have a lot of data on law enforcement, a lot of data in other areas, but mm -hmm. uh, for some people, the prosecutorial office is kind of a black box. Uh, do you think uh, it's possible to procure data that's useful um, about decision-making, or is it something that's so subjective it's hard to really quantify or analyze in the way you do law enforcement by number of traffic stops relative to uh, crime rates in the area? 
Well, I think that's kind of two different things. So okay. the, the prosecutor's work product is this big. <laughs> the things that are not discoverable for us, the things that we don't have to turn over, you know, a, an attorney who represents a, a criminal defendant has a, a wide range of things that they, they can share, right? The, the client can tell the attorney something and they have that attorney-client privilege. We don't have that benefit. We don't have attorney-client privilege with our witnesses or our victims. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We have the obligation to turn over everything, it's, it's anything that's exculpatory, right? Even the absence of a witness or the absence of a statement. Um, sometimes, and when I say that, it's like, we had a case one time where um, there was a, a domestic violence in the back of an Uber and our prosecutor investigated with an investigator and they went out to talk to the, um, the uh, Uber driver and the Uber driver said, I don't, I don't remember. Well, she failed to turn that information over to, because she was young and she didn't realize it was, she, she said, he didn't remember. He didn't remember there wasn't anything relevant. And we said, no, 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 you have to turn that over because the fact that that person is an Uber driver and they didn't remember a, an alleged violent act that happened in the back of their car is exculpatory. If I'm the defendant, I want my Uber driver to come and say, yeah, I mean, yeah, they were my ride because my Uber list here and my, my phone that I use for my business says that I picked this person up. But yeah, I don't remember that. If I'm the defendant being accused of a crime that I was supposedly committed in this car, I want that information out. So even the, the lack of information, we have to turn over. We don't have a choice. And so, and so I think that in and of itself shows really, you know, how much of that information um, that is out there is really, it, everything is, everything is fair game. And I think that's where we look at the system and we say, this is the best way that we know how to do it. I, I, it's not a perfect way because we don't always get the story, right? We don't always get the whole story. There are people that have prejudices and biases. And, you know, that's why cases are sometimes filed and dismissed, or sometimes we don't file cases because people don't have credibility. Um, and, you know, so the, 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 the nuts and the bolts of it are that the mentality or the thought process of the prosecutor is really their only work product. And the things that go into making that decision, whether to give a felony or a misdemeanor, if the case is what we call a wobbler, or, did, or making a recommendation to the court on how much time somebody should serve, whether they should serve time, it's based on so many factors. It's not just the facts and the law, but it's the person's um, history. You know, have they committed crimes in the past? Have they been, um, you know, in the system? Were they what we call a W&I kid, a welfare institution kid? Were they a kid who was put in the system because they didn't have good parenting? You know, that doesn't, that doesn't go against them. That's something that we look at to say like, hey, this kid didn't have a good foundation. So let's give them a, let's give them a chance. Let's give them another break. Let's give them a, a third last chance, right? To get it together. And then we look at the level of their crimes. Are their crimes increasing in severity or are they staying the same? Are they getting more violent? Are they starting to use weapons? Are they hurting children or animals? You know, are they, um, you know, are they, are they doing uh, increased, uh, criminal activity that's more dangerous to society. All of those things are taken into consideration before a plea bargain is made. And those are, you know, those are just yeah, way and balancing. It seems like a catch-22 because I think there, there's a lot of people out there saying that prosecutors have too much power in communities. 
uh, to ramp up felonies or whatever, whatever it is. Um, but we also don't want to have a completely unsubjective system where it's just an algorithm telling you how much time you're going to serve or what your crime is. And people don't like to be held accountable by blind machines. You know, I mean, you call a robocaller and you want to talk to customer service immediately, right? You want to get a person. But but what you're saying is exactly what I'm talking about. You're a super smart, intelligent, educated man. And what you just said is gibberish. No offense. That that's not how it works. That's not how it happens. We don't decide to ramp up felonies. <laughs> there are certain there are certain laws that are misdemeanors. There are certain laws that are felonies, and there are wobblers, which can be felonies or they can be reduced. And to that's what we're talking about, right? Is okay. that that middle? That, that's a very small number of crimes. That's a very small number of crimes that can be felonies and misdemeanors. And the way you decipher wobblers from misdemeanors and felonies is in the code. It will say this crime is punishable by incarceration in the state prison or jail time, which means it's it's a wobbler, right? Mm-hmm. And there, again, a very small amount of crimes for that. So cases are felonies or they're misdemeanors. If it is a wobbler, a lot of the times if someone is convicted of a felony or they plead guilty to a felony and they are on a grant of three years of felony probation and they complete everything within a year and a half, we make a, arrangements or we make agreements in the plea bargain at the onset to reduce it to a misdemeanor upon the successful completion of probation. There's also a penal code section 1203.4, which allows people to go in and have, have things expunged from their record if they have uh, you know, successfully completed probation, paid all their fines, not committed any new crimes. So there's a lot of opportunities you know, to do things in the law. And so I think the fact that you, as an informed, intelligent, educated, smart man, are under this impression that that is the norm is, is, a, is just a true testament to how much um, misinformation is out there. In, yeah, in and the I'm more, about I was more articulating a common critique uh, than something that I personally believe. I think what yeah, I was trying no, no, to no. point out is there is a lot of people want to understand how the wobblers get decided, quote unquote. Right. Um, and the seeming lack of transparency is what bothers people, which is, you know, I mean, that's, that's the point that I'm trying to make. Right. And I think the frustrating thing is as prosecutors, we don't have any, we don't have any cloud. We don't have any protection. Every piece of information that we have about a criminal defendant is given over to the defense attorneys. Everything is, everything is. Now, do we turn police reports over to, you know, media or, or like sometimes we'll have a a car accident or a DUI or something. We'll have a a civil attorney say, Hey, I'm representing these people in the civil case. Can you send me the police report? I said, it's not my story to tell. Call the police department. You know, it's their story. Call the highway patrol. We don't, we don't give that kind of information out. And we do protect the confidentiality of sexual assault victims and minors and DV victims. But as far as when, when, when cases are put to court, the everything has to be disclosed. And if it's not, there are penalties. There are actually criminal penalties that a prosecutor can suffer if they violate discovery laws. And the, the rap sheet is what is, is, and it's like, you know, everyone says, oh, the prosecutor has all this, this power. Well, yes and no, right? We have the, we have the power to charge people with crimes and we have the power to try cases or make settlements. But the bottom line at the end of the day is the court, whether it's a, whether it's a, a 
whether it's a, um, a trial that comes to a guilty verdict or it's a plea bargain, the court has to accept that plea. The court has to be informed and will ask questions. And the court will ask, you know, on a misdemeanor plea, what's the defendant's criminal history? Because a lot of times the misdemeanors, they'll just sentence them right there. Where felonies are referred over to the probation department and a full biographical, if you will, information uh, packet is given. It's called the report of a probation officer, an RPO. And that is given to the judge uh, outlining the law, outlining the facts of the case, putting in a victim impact statement oftentimes, discussing the defendant's um, criminal history within the county, out of the county, out of the state. If they had open warrants, if they had failures uh, or successes on probation or parole, all of that information is in there. The first time they smoked marijuana, the first time they, they, drank, they drank alcohol, the, the, the information about their income, if they lived, if they were, you know, live in a, in a home, if they're married or single, if they have support, all of that is in there so that we have as much information as we can before we sentence people. Because the point of sentencing people is for rehabilitation always first. And the second is for consequences and, you know, punishment, I guess, is, to, is for accountability. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that's not politically correct thing to say is that you should, you know, punish people who do bad things, but it's just like with children. If you don't discipline them, then they just do the behavior again. So, so it really all is a form of discipline. And some people get hit in the pocketbook. If you've ever known anybody who's had a DUI, it's expensive. Mm-hmm. It's expensive to get a DUI. You know, not only are you endangering your own life, but you're endangering the life of every car you pass on the road, but it's the classes are expensive. The fines are expensive. And those fines are designed to, to hit people in the pocketbook to say like, I never want to do that again. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about balancing stakeholders. Um, as the DA, you have to balance a lot of stakeholders, right? You've got mm-hmm. law enforcement, you've got the ADAs that work for you. You've got, you know, government uh, that you're involved with in different capacities. You've sure. got public defenders you, and then you have the broader community that elected mm-hmm. you. Um, how do you think about balancing those stakeholders when maybe they don't agree with uh, the direction things could go? Or should so go? I think in all the people of all the people that are elected in any county, Fresno County or any county, we as district attorneys have the easiest row to go in this sense is that we have one goal. I have one goal. And this is not rogue DAs. This is normal, traditional DAs. I have one goal, and that is public safety. And my agenda is public safety for everybody, for for everybody, for defendants, for poor people, for rich people, for white people, for black people, for brown people, for everybody, is to have an environment where people can take their kids to the park, where they can go to the mall, where they can go to work, where they can go shopping, they can send their kids to school without worrying that God forbid there's gonna be a horrible event there, whether that's somebody on the staff that's gonna hurt them or somebody's gonna come in off the campus. So for me, the more stakeholders we engage with, and I think that is one thing that we've done really well during my administration and my team and I both, we have really engaged with education. We have engaged with, with faith-based. We've engaged, you know, obviously with law enforcement, public defender, probation. We really have good relationships with our law enforcement agencies. But we've even gone out into the private sector, you know, and, and, and really talked with people. You know, there's a lot of people involved in real estate that are so frustrated by copper wire theft and their, their air conditioning units, hundreds of thousands of dollars being ripped apart, you know. We have obviously, you know, issues with a lot of people who make public integrity complaints. And oftentimes we can't prove those. And it's very frustrating for everybody involved. Um, But we really try to reach out. And when you when your goal is not multifaceted, it's easier. 
right? When you don't have to, to do, um, you know, you don't have to satisfy a lot of different political pressures. Uh, it makes it easy because there's just one thing in it and that's public safety. And sometimes that means holding people's feet to the fire. And sometimes that means that people, you know, we will recommend to the court that people go to jail or prison. And sometimes people commit crimes that are probation ineligible, which means they cannot serve their time in a local jail. They have to go to prison. And that's the law. That's not just the DAs. That's the court has to abide by it. The public defenders have to, you know, take it. And that's what the DA's recommendation is. But, but as far as, you know, the community stakeholders go, we are here for everyone, because if you think of anything in this community, whether it's, you know, finance, banking, education, healthcare, mental health, public health, religion, whatever you do, people who are entrepreneurs, people who want to start their own businesses, people who work in minimum wage jobs, everyone wants the same thing. That's a safe place to live, right? And in, in communities like Fresno, you know, 5% of the people commit 90% of the crime, right? We have a million people in Fresno and we have about, I don't know, now I don't know what the number is, 25,000 validated gang members. So there's probably, even if you double it, right? Say we only validated half of them. So you have, you have, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 or 50,000 gang members in a community of a million people, right? And every gangbanger is not a murderer. Every gangbanger is not a shooter. There's a lot of people that are associated with gangs and do they commit crimes? Probably, maybe, but there's some people that are associated with gangs because that's their family. I'm not condoning it. I'm not encouraging it because there's a lot of human trafficking. There's a lot of car theft. There's a lot of drug sales, a lot of gun sales that go on in, 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 in gangs. But there are some people who just are in or they're gang associates or they, they go to that lifestyle because they think it's cool or hip or whatever. And those are the people that are committing most of the violent crime. And a lot of the times they commit it against each other. We have a lot of infighting in gangs. A lot of the times you'll have one gang member in the same gang. They fight over a woman or they fight over something stupid or they're high or they're drunk and they kill each other. Or one gang member kills another gang member from another gang. You know, and thankfully we can we contain a lot of that. A lot of our other violent crime has to do with domestic violence. You know, people killing people that they love out of rage or jealousy or or, you know, we've had, we had a rash this year of, of children killing their parents, just mentally ill, young men killing their parents. Was it COVID? Was it, you know, is it society? Is it, you know, what is it going back to the mental health, you know, stuff. And, and these are hard cases, you know, to prosecute and they're hard cases to read about. They're hard cases to see in your community. But, you know, when you think about where we all have to come. I think that I think that there's always room for improvement, but I think that Fresno has really done a lot of really good things. There's a lot of people in the education system, as you well know, that truly, truly care about kids. And the the burden on teachers today, talk about stakeholders, my gosh. Teachers taught me math and English and science and you know all that. Now we have social and emotional learning. As a teacher, you have to teach kids how to say please and thank you. I have a friend who's a, a teacher in Southwest Fresno, and sometimes your kids don't know right and left when they come, whether that's a language barrier or that's just their parents don't talk to them, they don't sing to them, they don't read to them. 
Um, maybe it's because they're working or maybe it's because they're negligent or maybe it's because they don't know better or maybe it's because their parents didn't sing or read or talk to them, you know, and their, their vocabularies are much less than some of the kids that are sitting in the desk next to them. You know, you know, there's a lot of challenges for teachers. And then yeah. those of us in law enforcement, we rely a lot on the schools, you know, to help us with education and awareness and human trafficking education and fentanyl awareness. And, you know, I, I, I have Jim Yavino on speed dial and Bob Nelson and Emer O'Farrell. They're, they're on speed dial. We talk to them all the time. Can we come? Can we lecture? Can we talk to your teachers? Can we talk to your kids? And there's a lot of burden on, on, the, on the educational system. Uh, so, so, yeah, we, we are very invested, but it's, but it's good work because we have one goal is for everyone to be safe. And, and, it, and it's good to have guiding principles. I mean, that really helps you make any hard decision is just, just asking yourself, does this fit within our vision and mission? Um, and that answers all the questions at the end of the day. It really does. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's go. Let's close with books. Um, okay. What are two to three book recommendations you'd give to the audience, either books that are important to you or oh it can gosh. be related to what we talked about, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah. So I, um, so my favorite book, that I read over and over and over. In fact, I have a copy of it in my desk somewhere, um, is The Four Agreements. Mm. I can't see it. It's in my blurb, but yeah. I feel there. like I've seen that book a hundred times, but I haven't read it and I don't know what it's about, but I've, I can recognize it's, the cover. <laughs> it is a really good book. And it reminds me, um, you know, of some of the things that I have to, to, to constantly just remind myself of. And The Four Agreements are Be Impeccable With Your Word, um, don't take anything personally, which is very difficult, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes don't when you're in politics, don't make assumptions and always do your best. And, you know, those are the four principles, I think, that if all of us sort of, you know, go by every day, we have signs in the DA's office all the time. My, my motto is work hard and be nice. Um, and, and I think that's really sort of the mentality that I learned from the four agreements and I read it, read it over and over again. Um, because it really is. And then another book that I'm reading uh, right now, which I'm very slow to get through because a lot of the times I'm, as I'm getting older, I get very tired when I read and I fall asleep a lot. Um, But I'm reading a book called The Least of Us, and it's about the fentanyl crisis Mm. in America. And um, it was written by a guy named Sam Quinones. uh, And he wrote a book also called, um, I think it's called The Neverland. Um, but I, and I haven't read that the first one, but the least of us is, is specifically um, about the fentanyl and opioid crisis in the United States. And that has over the last couple of years sort of become, you know, my most recent passion uh, because I think that um, I you know, always tell people being the DA is my second job and my first job is being a mom to my children. And um, the, the, the teenagers and the young adults of this community are really at risk every single day. Um, with the with the crisis of the fentanyl that's being brought into this country uh, from south of the border, and so I am trying to educate myself as much as I can and speak to as many people as I can about being aware of what's happening. So um, that book has really been helping me. I was actually Chief Balderrama recommended it to me, and uh, and so I'm reading it, and it's very 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 informative, um, and just helps me understand a little bit more, and hopefully um, gives me the opportunity to educate some more people on the on the crisis. Great. So let's, um, where can people find out more information about the DA's office and what you guys are up to? So we 
probably aren't the best at, um, <laughs> we probably don't have the best website, but we do have a website on the county, the County of Fresno website that tells about the departments we have, the work that we do, uh, tells a little bit about me and my philosophies and some of my experience. And then again, of course, all the units we have, you know, from auto fraud to homicide, to gangs, to sexual assault, to workers' comp fraud. I mean, we, the DA's office is kind of like 31 flavors. Um, so you can go to Fresno County, it's www.fresnocountyca.gov, I believe is the, is the website. Otherwise just Google or put in your search engine, uh, Fresno County. And then um, we have the Fresno County DA's office has a Facebook page. I'm very excited to say this year, the county gave us a um, position for a public information officer. So one of her, she just started a couple of weeks ago. So her goal is to get us more active on social media. Um, she's one of those young uh, people who knows all about that kind of stuff and how to navigate that. So we're trying to push out that, but we do have a Facebook page and we, we post a lot of uh, the community interactions that we do here in, uh, in the office, as well as, you know, some of the updates on some of our cases. And so we, we do use that and people can always go to that, that uh, Facebook page or the website. Thank you so much for doing this, Lisa. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time.